Big race. You might burn about four and a half thousand kilojoules. My coach told me the only way to eat enough is to eat until you puke and then eat everything that you've puked. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 37 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's giving out diet advice. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And I do want to start this week again with another great iTunes review. Thank you very much, Mr. Darcy Walker. This is a great podcast for the fitness-minded, lots of useful info on training gear and technique, plus all the good news on what's happening in cycling. Thank you, Darcy, for taking the time to do that. I really appreciate your words. Five stars is a great way to start the day. And a reminder that if you like the show, please take some time out to drop a review on iTunes. It really does mean the world to me. Also, thanks to all my new friends on Instagram. I'm digging, checking out the photos. And if I do stalk you, don't worry. That's the whole point, right? But anyway, you can check me out on Instagram under my personal account. Just search for Damien Roos and you will find me. So the news this week, we've had a lot of racing, a lot of high quality racing with the big names coming out and smashing everybody. E3, Cancellara, what can you say? He let it all hang out. He showed everybody why he is the long range bomb boss. 35 kilometers to go attacking Lone solo ride to the finish. Things are really heating up, especially because Boonen is having such a shocker. He's having Cancellara's 2012 luck, I think. The next race, the Criterium International, Froome and Port, they've just got to be having a laugh, don't they? The last stage was excellent. I got so into it, especially when Froome just rode away, spinning up the climb, and then Port attacked with two kilometers to go. Apparently, the plan was to see how Port's legs were going into that last climb. Froome said he didn't really mean to ride away, but he saw a gap and he just took it. I don't know how Port's going to feel about that, but I guess he still is a domestic, even though he's really showing his class. And Port had his own attack with two kilometers to go and came in around 30 seconds behind Froome. It's getting really interesting. Can they hold this form until the tour? If they can, it's just going to be another sky domination. Ghent, Webblegum, Sagan absolutely smashing them from around four kilometers to go. He's broken through for his first big spring classic ride. I'm sure he was happy with it. And the way that he won it, another powerhouse display. It was definitely a big show of his class. Well done, Sagan. And I'm really looking forward to what you can do in the next race that you're in. I don't think you're doing Paris-Roubaix or Tour of Flanders. So we'll see what happens when you pop up next. And Cape Epic. Epic indeed. Klavi and Souza won the race. They ended up winning four out of the eight stages, but not with some drama. It is mountain biking after all. There is none of this getting in the team bus halfway through a stage. They missed turns. They broke chains. They broke tool chains and broke rims. And I got to say, what else can you break and come away with a win still? It's interesting that absolute favorites can go into an event and still 
have troubles but come away with the win. It really does show their class, and well done to them and everyone else that finished Cape Epic. I know it's not just a pure pro race. So well done, and see you there next year. So the nuts and bolts this week, cycling teams. Cycling teams are a bit of a mystery to me. Of course, when it comes down to the pro peloton, everybody knows about cycling teams. But when it comes to the semi-pro, it's not always the first thing that you think about. And especially with your own cycling and your own goals, you're not always encompassing a team. I guess it does depend on the culture of racing where you are. But me, personally, I don't have a lot of experience with running or organizing a team. So I got Hennick Getz from CycleWise Coaching on the show to discuss the ins and outs of cycling team. Hennock, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I want to talk today about teams, and I know that you do have a, a lot of experience being involved with teams, running teams, etc. And I just want to start with what your experience with cycling teams is. My experience is riding with teams for uh, more years than I can even remember. And I ran a team from 2005 through the end of 2011. And then in 2012 and now in 2013, I kind of, I don't manage the team anymore, but I still help manage and I'm very involved with the uh, sponsorship element of it. So what was the reason that you first started a team or you first started getting involved with teams? You mean as far as not riding, but as far as being more involved with the managing side of it? Yeah, let's start with the management side first, yeah. Well, I mean, I was on a team, uh, you know, I rode for a team for a number of years. And then at one point, the team that I was on, I didn't particularly like the way the uh, manager was running it or the way his approach. Um, and I just thought I, I can do a better job or, <laughs> or, or you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. But I just had different ideas of how I thought an amateur team, you know, should be run and how it should be managed. So I was like, you know, I'm going to try to do this on my own. So that just led you into starting your own team from scratch? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And... Just take me through the organization of the team, of how you actually set the structure up. So obviously, you were the manager of sorts or the director sportif, in a sense. Yeah, so to speak. What other roles did you get people on board to do? I mean, you know, it's it's obviously unlike a, a pro team or even a very high level elite amateur team. This was kind of more of a, like a local amateur team. So it wasn't as structured, but I had other people help me with choosing what races would be a good fit for the team or leading some training rides or um, gathering information for the sponsors that I would then in turn you know, help me make the sponsors happy and things like that. And also if people had connections with sponsorship opportunities, whether they be cash sponsors outside of the industry, or even if people had some connections with companies in the bike industry, they would help me with getting leads for sponsorship. And how would you actually get these people on board? The riders? Yeah. A couple ways. One is riders that I just kind of knew from the racing scene because I, I had already been racing for a number of years. So I kind of knew people just from, you know, around the races, from training rides or just people that you meet at all the races that you go to. Because over here in, in the northeastern part of the United States, there's a very healthy racing scene. So you can do, if you want, anywhere from 30, some guys I know even do like 50 races a year. So when you, you know, you in the same scene, you're week after week after week over a number of years, you just kind of get to know people. Uh, that's one way. And another way is I would just kind of comb through the results. And if I would see names popping up that I kind of thought, oh, these guys are getting the results and the types of races that I want to kind of have the team do well. And I would try to find their name or send them an email or ask someone else if they knew them and go about it that way as well. So I guess a two-pronged approach, you can say. It's interesting that you're actually going after riders you wanted. Like, I'm not sure whether I've heard that approach with um, amateur teams. Like, it makes total sense to do that, but uh, 
Were you poaching people from other teams or, or they were individual riders? I tried not to poach. I mean, if some teams do here in this, in, at least where I am, do a lot of poaching. My approach was I didn't want to poach other teams. So what I tried to do is find riders that uh, were either up and coming. So they were kind of new, you know, new to the scene, but it seemed like they had talent, whether they came from a different sport or, you know, they just all of a sudden discovered that they were doing century rides and they started racing. I was like, you know, this guy looks like he has potential. Let me try to get him. Or sometimes I got lucky and someone just happened to move to this area from another part of the world. Like at one point I was at a race, I was just doing a race and there was this guy that looked really strong. And I was, I was like, I never seen this guy before. Who is he? So right after the race, I was like, Hey, how are you doing? My name is Henek. What, what, you know, who are you? And he's like, Oh yeah, I just moved here from Holland. And I used to race with like uh, Michael Bogart and this, I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> You're looking for a team in New York, you know? So once in a while you get lucky like that. But um, I tried not to poach from other teams. Sometimes I would know guys, they were looking to change teams. They weren't, for one reason or another, they might've been unhappy with their current situation. So I'll be like, oh, you know, I have an open slot. But generally I wouldn't, I wouldn't poach. Sounds very moral of you. I can understand yeah. the difficulty it would start to cause, but uh, I want to talk about why you want to get on a team as well. But I, I don't necessarily see it as always a good thing. I've sort of listed down some of my positives and negatives, but I'd be interested to hear yours first. So if you could just run through the positives of being on a team. Well, I mean, I'll quickly give you just the reason. Again, I'm referring to the scene that I know, which is the northeastern part of the U.S., so it might be different in other parts of the U.S. and most certainly in other parts of the world. But here it, it seems that everybody really wants to be on the team. People don't really even think about it. It's just like... Okay, you know, you have your power meter, you have your, you know, your clipless pedals. You're not going to go to a race without clipless pedals. It's like you just are going to be on a team. You know, that's just kind of par for the course. Positives are beyond like just people want to be on teams for the uh, status or, you know, things like that. The positives are that people get into the sport. Usually maybe they see the tour on TV or they read about it and they're like, hey, cool, I want to try that. So one thing is they just want to simulate their hero, so to speak. So they see, oh, you know, a Garmin is at the front or Sky or whatever. You know, we want to try to be Bradley Wiggins or Richie Port or whatever. But the real legitimate positive reason is that not everybody can win a race or be on the podium. So they can still kind of be active in the race and have a role to play, not feel like they're coming to race. So I'm just going to get 50th place today. What am I even doing here? So they can, they can have a role to play. Like, okay, you're going to cover all the brakes for the first 30 kilometers, or you're going to lead out the sprinter, or you're going to, uh, you know, if we have a good climber, you're going to kind of keep them protected from the, w from the wind until they get to the climb. So at least they have a role to play. So they can be active, they can have goals to set in their training or in their racing and not feel like they really don't have a chance to uh, succeed, to do anything. So people are happy with that. People are happy with entering a race knowing that, well, okay, they're new to the sport or whatever, so they know their ability is not going to mean that they're going to be winning every race. So they feel happy that they're connected to a team that has potential of a winning. Is, is that what they're yes, getting from they, it? They do. They absolutely do. I was actually at a race yesterday and I was talking to some guys, just some friends that I know, and they're on a team. And he was like, oh yeah, you know, the guy did this today and I kind of was in the win for the first 20K, just kind of keeping a path together. And people absolutely love it. Yeah. As surprising as it sounds, people actually, absolutely love it. They feel part of something, whether it's the camaraderie or whatever it is, but they absolutely love it, yeah. That's really interesting to me because I've come from the totally different angle, especially starting with mountain biking, which is an absolute individual sport, but then just moving up and riding grades in Australia. The team culture really hasn't taken on, except for probably the last three or four years, 
I would say. So okay. um, everyone that's entering a race, regardless of whether they can actually win it or not, is in for the win, essentially. And so right. he- hearing that people are willing to work as a team, does a team hold back anyone's potential at all? Can you see that someone could just get shoved into this role and then eventually they're not developing? Or within teams that you've been involved with, do people actually get the chance to be the leader for the day? Or is there a rotating system? Or how does that work? That's a very good question. I think that depends on the team. That very much depends on the team manager's approach, which goes back to your first question about why I started a team. Because actually the team that I was on back then, I felt the manager didn't really offer people their kind of day in the sun, so to speak. My approach was everybody should have, at least if they have the ability, they should have the the opportunity to win or place top 10 or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But I think for the most part, the answer is that yes, everybody does get an opportunity because on the amateur level, if you have the ability sooner or later, you know, you're going to have your opportunity to shine. Even if you're not appointed the team leader, I mean, if you're strong, you'll be at the front and you'll you know, you'll be in the top 10 coming over the climb or you'll be top 10 in the sprint. And then people will realize, Hey, this guy's pretty strong. We should make him the leader for this race suits his ability, perhaps a little bit more than rider B. So I think for the most part, yes, people, people's growths are stunted. Again, I think there are some exceptions, some teams that are super structured and they really kind of act as if they're a pro team with, you know, a million euro budget. And on those teams, yes, perhaps some riders, miss their development opportunity. But I think I would say like 80% of the time, it works out pretty well. So you've said that within your local cycling scene that teams are a big part of the culture. So it's kind of just normal evolution of starting racing and then eventually you'll be joining a team. But what if you didn't join a team? Does it become a burden at a certain level? Like, have you seen riders, Cat 1, Cat 2 in your areas that are riding on their own and not winning because they're not with the team? So what I'm trying to say is, is there a level that you could get through on your own without a team and still successfully win? Or is it a necessity at a certain category? I mean, it depends. If you're an unbelievable talent, has the uh, talent to become a pro, then you could probably win on your own, you know, on, on the amateur level. But I mean, if you're a legitimate, strong Cat 2 or Cat 1, I wouldn't say you absolutely cannot win without a team. But I would say you'll, you will definitely win less without a team. Yeah, there's no question about it. Teams, if it's a sprinter type race, you know, where it's going to come down to a field sprint, say you're a good sprinter. If you're on your own, do you have to chase down every break or do you have to, you know, throw elbows in the last 10 kilometers just to be able to sprint? You know, you have to do all that on your own. Even on this level, if you have a decent team and you're a sprinter, you don't have to do anything all race. You just chill out in the back and at 100 watts, let your team chase down all the breakaways and cover all the moves and even move you up to the front. And all you need to do is, um, I mean, all I say is if it's nothing, of course, you have to be able to to win. But I mean, all you have to do is, is, is race the last two or three kilometers. Even if it's a road race that's going to be determined by climbing or by, uh, you know, like a spring classic type race where it's going to be a breakaway and you're the strong man that can make it into the break but still you can't cover every move on your own you have to know which moves are are the legitimate threats and which aren't so you need teammates to a to cover the moves maybe won't won't be the winning move but still just in case or you need teammates to kind of keep it together for the race until the field is tired enough that you can attack and get off the front so yeah i think that um even on this level teams are pretty important 
Just circling back slightly to the negatives of teams, I imagine you've been through teams that have dissolved through whatever reason. Is a big part of that just managing expectations of everyone involved? I guess it comes down to good leadership when you're recruiting and the ongoing morale of the team and and how you engage everybody. But is there anything that you have that you can recommend for managing those expectations within the team? Any ideas or, or ways that you can help that? The big part is the, is the personalities. You know, forget about all the the nuts and bolts, the sponsorship, or getting to races, or even what races you're going to do, or who's the sprinter, who's the climber. It's really managing the personality. So, like what you said before, you know, you asked if perhaps it stunts your development as as a racer if you're on a team. So you do have to be very careful. A, in your recruiting, you know, you can't recruit like ten sprinters. You know, you have to have a, a good balance. But also you have to make sure that everybody is comfortable within their role and is willing to work for the team. And you have to make that clear from the outset. Okay, you know, say if you have a really good sprinter that has a really good shot at winning races, and say for whatever reason you you want to recruit another sprinter, whatever the case may be. So you have to make it very clear to him that A, you know, he might have to be the lead out guy for, for let's say, for this year, or B, you know, your main sprinter that's already on the team is going to still going to be your main sprinter for the A races, but he'll be the designated sprinter for the B races or things like that. So, you know, because ultimately on this level, no one's drawing a paycheck. So you can't really, really tell people what to do. So you have to manage their expectations. Otherwise, you have personality clashes and then things can go south in a, in a hurry, you know. <laughs> yeah, these are all the reasons in my head that it doesn't necessarily appeal to me if I can get away with it. Um, if I was in an environment that, that allowed me to race without being in a team, then I would most likely choose that over not being in a team, but that's also my antisocial personality. Well, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so say someone wants to get on a team, say someone was to approach you to be on one of your teams, what advice would you give them? Well, I mean, it depends where they are in their, you know, in their racing career, so to speak, or the, you know, how long they've been racing or what their goals are. So it depends if they're, you know, if they're a newbie, they're just, they're just starting out or if they already have, have a history you know, with some results or things like that. You know, race resume is important and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be, you know, the amateur version of uh, Bradley Wiggins or Mark Cavendish. It just means that you should list when you started racing, the highlights of some of the races that you've done, even if you don't have a whole bunch of results, just kind of listing the races that you've done, the dates, the years. Obviously, if you have results, highlight them. But it's not necessarily just about the results. It's also about your commitment to racing to show that you're serious about traveling to the races and taking the time it takes to train and things like that. So having a, a race resume is a good idea. Obviously, being friendly and being a nice guy is is, uh, is helpful. I think that, that's the main thing. You know, Just approach someone and be like, hey, and that you run a team really interested in being part of the team. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. You know, I'm a great climber. I can ride in the wind for, for two hours or I'm, you know, really strong lead out man, things like that. Or if you're, even if you have other talents, perhaps if you have, you know, you're really good at, um, at managing, you know, Facebook or social, you know, social media, you know, so you can say, Hey, um, you know, maybe I don't get on the podium 10 times a year, but I can really help the team out with their social media efforts or things like that. Yeah, all those points are actually pretty spot on to what I was thinking about because, yeah, the first one is definitely having a match. So the team is your grade or something you aspire to that you can at least hang on during the races. Second, relationships. Building relationships is probably more important than results 
initially at the beginning anyway, especially if you're just getting started building relationships with people because you've got to travel with these people, you've got to train with these people. And so you're on the bike together for a long time and having an understanding of each other and is just as important as being able to ride a bike well sometimes. Plus the brand. I think that the brand, someone's individual brand of what people think about when someone says your name goes a long way in establishing yourself as friendly and approachable and being a good ambassador for any sponsors you have or anything like that. I think just being approachable and and everyone knows you, that's a, a pretty good start in getting your foot in the door with any team that you want to approach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially and, and what you mentioned about being a good brand ambassador. What I find is a lot of cyclists don't think about that much. They're like, oh, I'm Mr. Hotshot Racer and I should be on your team because, you know, I won, you know, this obscure little crit, some small town that nobody ever heard of. You say, oh, that's great. You know, but we, you know, you know, Oakley sponsors us, the Rudy Project sponsors us, sponsors us. And, you know, a couple times a year, we need to go to the bike shop and spend half a day just kind of promoting Rudy Project. Can you dedicate three days a year for that? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I could take off time of my training for that. And, uh, you know, you're like, well, you know, do you really understand what, what I'm talking about here? You know, <laughs> so yeah, so that, that definitely goes a long way. Yeah, there's a lot more to just bike riding, even at an amateur level, even at a semi-pro level, you know, let alone the pros that have a lot of other obligations, but then they're branding themselves as their own individual rider separate from their teams as well to attract personal sponsors. Right, right. But I think on the other hand, in a sense, I mean, obviously, if you're a pro and you have these multinational, multi-million dollar sponsorships, you have to give back to those sponsors. But on the other hand, in a way, this is my opinion, I might be wrong, but in a way, on the amateur level, even though the sponsorships are much smaller, but on the other hand, those things that you do for the sponsors are more important because if you're a pro, you're going to be on the cover of, uh, you know, cyclingnews.com or, you know, not the cover, the headline or, or on the cover of Cycle Sport or whatever. And even if you're not a nice guy or you don't have a good Facebook or Twitter presence, being on, on the front page of uh, Cycle Sport is worth a lot of money to a sponsor. When you're an amateur cyclist, you know, you're never going to be on the homepage of cyclingnews.com or on the cover of a magazine or whatever. So other ways, social media or even, you know, promoting it, you know, the local local bike shop or maybe a local cycling club, ways that you can make yourself more kind of valuable to a sponsor or a potential sponsor like that is almost more important, not from the racing perspective, but from a team slash sponsorship perspective even more important than you know your results, perhaps. I guess in that sense that you're really aiming to provide value. So you're saying that a pro rider can instantly provide value by getting one cover per year, that that exposure just is a thousand or a hundred thousand times more than an amateur rider could give them. But there are still other ways amateur riders can present themselves and offer some value to sponsors. Most definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. No question about it. So if we can just talk sponsorship for a moment then, I imagine that you've been involved in approaching sponsors and structuring deals. How do you actually go about it? So how do you start looking for sponsors for a team? So again, it depends if you're looking for cash sponsorship, you know, you really want someone to cut you a check, or if you're looking for product sponsorship within the industry, whether it be, you know, a nutrition company like Cliff Bar or Honey Stinger, or whether it be a bike sponsor or a helmet sponsor. So that those are two very different approaches. If it's a product sponsor, so obviously they already know what you're talking about. You don't have to explain to them what a bike race is or what a bike racing team is or, or even what sponsorship is. They already know what that is. 
You just have to get in touch with the right person and convince them why you're the best team as opposed to 5,000 other teams that are probably trying to get free helmets or a few cases of energy bars or things like that. If you're actually trying to get a title sponsor, someone that's going to write you a check and your name of the, you know, the name of your team is going to be their company, then it's, it's, it's very different. Then you're most likely looking for someone outside the sport that can afford to write you um, a check. How you approach them, if it's within the sport or then you have to convince them, you know, what you can do for them. And again, I think that for, for those products, whether it's, let's say, you know, a company like Trek or Specialized or a nutrition company, I don't know if I'm supposed to name names or not, but whatever, you know, a bike company or a helmet company or something. Um, I don't think they necessarily are that concerned with the results. They do obviously want to be involved with successful teams, even on the amateur level, they, they want success, but they really want to hear that you understand that sponsorship is a two-way street, that it's an investment, not just like, hey, I'm the next coming of, you know, Mark Cavendish, so I deserve a free helmet. They want to hear that you understand that they're investing in your team and what you can give back to them. There's a lot of things that you can do on the local level, partnering with a bike shop that carries their brand or um, talking to um, clubs, non-racing clubs, you know, like cycling clubs that do, you know, centurized, things like that, how you can promote their brand among riders like that. So they really want to hear about that. They want to see that you understand that concept and that you have some concrete ideas about how you're going to execute that. I was just going to just mention how you've split sponsorship right down the middle. So we're talking bike related, which essentially you would just be getting products or discounts on products. The other side of that is cash. How much cash do you need? Like when you when you're running an amateur team, where is the money going to directly? You know, is it going to bike races or travel? I mean, it really depends what kind of team you want. I mean, there are teams that get no cash sponsorship, but they're still, like I said, in the beginning, in the beginning of the show, they want to be on the team. They think it's cool to be on, on a team. So in a case like that, it's more than likely a bunch of friends that either they they know each other, they've met at the races, or they've been riding together before they even started racing. And they're like, hey, we should have a team. So they just have a team. They come up with a name Maybe they get some discounts, but they pay for everything themselves. As far as cash goes, really, it's hard to say. So then it's hard to say what the minimum is because a team like that, if you give them $500, they'll be happy with it. On the other hand, there are teams here that pay for all the clothing, all the entries, a fair amount of travel expenses. So for a team like that, you might need uh, somewhere between... Twenty to forty thousand dollars to uh, to run a team like that. So on an amateur level, I mean, you know, twenty five or, or forty thousand dollars. Well, it's it's not a, a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, but it's it's a healthy amount of money to ask someone to cut you a check for uh, thirty grand or something. Yeah. So then it really becomes a a business proposition where you want to be providing value to that sponsor. Otherwise, there's no point in them doing it. Right. Exactly. Yes. Correct. Have you ever felt the negative effects of sponsorship? Yes, I unfortunately I have. Um, I mean, the negative effect would be when when uh, more money becomes involved, people, again, if you have the wrong personalities, they tend to think, oh, well, you know, this company is paying for my kit and paying for my traveling expenses, so I must be, I must be really important. So then they kind of start getting an attitude and, and uh, start expecting a lot of things that they don't necessarily deserve, whether they're monetary expectations or they kind of start not riding within the team 
structure, but think, oh, you know, I should be the team leader at every race, even if the, even if they don't have the ability for that. So things, yes, I have. I I was on a team that had small sponsorship, and then kind of we got lucky enough where uh, we got a, a rather large company to you know invest. And then all of a sudden, not everyone on the team, but a couple guys, their attitudes kind of changed. They kind of became, uh, I don't know, what's the word? I, I know a word I want to, in my head, I don't know what I want to say, but you know, they, they stopped being such nice guys. Yeah. The, so the, the sponsorship definitely did have a negative effect, not necessarily on the whole team, but on, on you know, particular people. Yes, it is something, unfortunately, that, that can happen. Yeah, it can kind of be that thing where, at a certain level, sponsorship just it amplifies some negative points in people, especially if they become competitive and they're the win-at-all-cost type of racer. Then it can really start to colour their judgment, I think. And uh, yeah, I haven't had a lot of experience with that, but I can tell that you've seen it, and it's it's not pretty. Yeah, correct. And living also again, I live in uh, New York City, so I think in New York tends to attract you know, a bigger percentage or a bigger concentration of, um, type A personalities to begin with, you know, a lot of people that are in, in investment banking or are in, you know, on wall street or, or high powered lawyers, they come to New York from other places. So they already have that personality, you know, <laughs> of self-importance or self, you know, worth. So it, it tends to, uh, to kind of magnify itself in this type of situation. The interesting thing about the area that you write in, not to digress too far, but there has been a couple of positive drug tests at <laughs> amateur level in your area. Is that correct? Unfortunately, yes. That is, yeah, of course, yeah. I'm sure most people, or not, some people have heard about the, uh, there was the positive in the Grand Fondo New York last year. And there were also some other positives uh, in years past of the, uh, racers yes correct so just tying that back into what we're talking about those types of personalities that are willing to do that type of thing to get a competitive edge are going to be the same people that are in teams pushing teams pushing their position in teams and so that i guess it creates an interesting environment but uh, i don't want to dwell on and what i want to talk about finally is say you do then get into a team how can you fit in how can you just get in straight away not ruffle feathers but still be a, a valuable team member I think the best, the best approach is just to be to be open and to be honest. So when you're talking to the team manager or talking to other guys on the team, um, bef- you know, just about joining, you want to uh, be very open w- with what your goals are, what you think your your strengths are. And you have to be honest with yourself. You know, you can't tell the team you're a great climber and then come in, you know, 50th place in a road race. So, but as long as you're honest, you say, hey, I, I think I'm a, I'm a really good climber or... I'd like to do well in road races, but if it's a crit that's flat, that's geared towards sprinters, I'm more than willing to bury myself for the sprinter, you know, or vice versa. I'm a great sprinter. I want team support in, you know, crits, but when it comes to road races with hills, I'm a lousy climber, so I'm happy to to uh, be on the front for the first part of the race and protect the climber. So as long as you're honest and open about that, and, you know, you tell them what your goals are and you ask them what the team goals are and how you can fit in, and, uh, you know, you do some, some training rides together just to kind of see where you fit in with the other riders that pretty much would avoid any problems down the road. I think, I think, yeah, just being open and communicating and honest, not trying to, uh, BS anybody is the best approach. Yeah. That sounds like perfect advice as well as under promising and over delivering. 
Well, yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, cool. That, uh, that basically wraps it up for me as far as the information that I was really curious to find out, especially because I just don't have the experience where you are or really too much to do with teams over my writing career. But I think it's a pretty fascinating topic. And yeah, I'd love to be in a scene just to watch it all unfold and then stick myself in there as a, a solo antisocial unit just to see how I go. Yeah, it would, it would be a nice, a nice experiment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially here, because everybody really is on teams. So I would say that, I mean, 98% of the people are on teams, whether they're starting to race or whether they're cat one. So it would be interesting to kind of do a little experiment, say, hey, you know, for this season, I'm going to ride solo and I want to see if, if I win less or if I win more or, if I'm, or, or even that about winning. If you, you know, because obviously, look, like you say, we're all semi-pros who are doing this for the love of the sport. So just see how it affects your relationship with racing. Do you enjoy it more being solo or do you kind of miss being on the team? It could go both ways. You can just enjoy having the freedom to not have any responsibility. Just always go out and try to win. Or if you're feeling lazy, maybe to sit in back in the pack. Or maybe, you know, maybe you'll find it really boring. Maybe it'll be like, you know, I really kind of miss having the job, you know, having the every race I go to, even if I can't win it, I know I can fulfill some some goal or feel that at the end of the race, you know, I did something. You know, and it probably depends on your personality. Some people will probably enjoy the former and some people the latter, but it would be a pretty fun experiment actually. I think that's a good way to frame it though, as far as your relationship with racing and how that would affect it. People that are in teams in traditional team sports like football or whatever, they always talk about when they're retiring, they miss the team element. So there's got to be something said to being able to share the experience with other people versus the traditional sort of semi-pro approach to, to cycling, which really is, it's such an individual pursuit and, and a selfish pursuit in a lot of ways that right, being in right. a team can sort of offset that a little bit as well. Yeah, one thing I just wanted to add, which I kind of forgot, one of the reasons that people want to join teams, and that's what you just kind of mentioned about traveling to races. I mean, if that's another element, I think, that people want to be in a team, especially if you're going to a lot of races that aren't right you know, close by. But if you're traveling to races or especially stage races where you're going to be somewhere for a few days, it's it's also practical. I mean, do you want to sit in, sit in the car by yourself for six hours and sit in a hotel room for three or four days by yourself or, you know, or, or, you know, you always want to have some guys to drive to the races with or share hotel rooms with or things like that, you know, so that's, that's another element to it. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm going to end it right there. So thank you very much for your insights into everything teams. And I do wish you and your team the best of luck for this season that's coming up. If you can get out if it's not snowing too much. Yeah, exactly. But uh, where's the best place people can find you if they want to check out your team or anything that you're up to? My coaching website is uh, cyclewisecoaching.com. The team that I race for this year is called Satanta Racing. We're on Facebook, Facebook, you know, forward slash Satanta Racing NYC. And um, I also have a Facebook page. So it's, um, if you look it up, uh, Cyclewise Coaching on Facebook and also find me there and Cool. I'll definitely drop the links onto the show notes. And thanks again for coming on Semi Pro Cycling. Oh, it's awesome. I love your show. You have such great information week in and week out. So I'm very, very grateful that uh, I can be part of that.
And moving right along to the tech hacks and products section, this week I'm going to talk about a product, the Wahoo Reflect. I have spoken about this before, but if you don't know, here is a quick reminder. It is basically a slave for your iPhone and whatever app you want to run on your iPhone to record your heart rate, power, GPS, speed, and cadence. I upgraded to an iPhone 4S. I'm not on the 5 yet, but I just wanted a 4S because I want to use the Bluetooth functionality. I'm fascinated by this whole realm of where apps can go in the future, not necessarily what they're doing right now. But I upgraded, I got a Wahoo Reflect, and this is my initial report from having it for around two weeks. After the second day, the rubber strap broke on the handlebar mount. I paused the app mid-ride. Forgot to unpause it. Well, I forgot to unpause it because the time still ticks over. And so I had a time there, but I didn't have any recorded data. So they're the two big bummers that hit me initially. But there is another mount. And I've got to say that the actual product itself works fine. There is a customizable screen just like you would find on any Garmin computer. So you can rig it any way you can. There's four screen options, so you can have four screens with with any configuration that you choose. I would say that it's just as cool as a Garmin. The potential is the thing that I'm talking about here. That is what I'm getting it for, and I'm waiting for app developers to come through. Some requests that I really would like to see on it is the app control for podcasts, not just music and mounting in the center of the bars. They do have a bar mount, but it's popped straight out on the right-hand side. And I like to get my hands in nice and close to the stem when I'm riding uphill, so it kind of gets in the way there. So Wahoo, if you're listening, please take note on those two changes. But other than that, I'm fairly happy with the product. Really, I have no complaints, and I look forward to using it for a long time to come. And that quote from the top of the show Did you get it? It's Josh Atkins. You may have not heard about this youngster from New Zealand. I think he's on the Bontrager cycling team. He's hard to track down, but this New Zealand lad has been cracking out some impressive results over the last couple of years, so he definitely is a name to watch out for, and I've got to wonder who his coach is, but that is a story for a whole other episode, and that is it for this week. So till next week... Get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 